Hey, it's uh, Downtown Josh Brown. I'm here with my guest today, Tom Lee. Tom is the former chief strategist at JP Morgan. He is the co-founder and head of research at Fundstrat. Tom is going to tell us about the most important indicators and things he looks at to understand what's happening in the market. Stick around. This is going to be great. First of all, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming up, uh, coming down. You're in the 50s? Yep, I'm in the 50s. Okay. I've been reading your stuff for 10 years, and one of the, thing, one of the things I found most interesting about your work is that uh, you've been almost consistently bullish throughout this entire what I call a secular bull market. And you've been mostly right. And there have been times where you didn't look right because markets were getting more volatile than what we're accustomed uh, to. But you've pretty much stayed the course. And I think people who have listened to you on balance have done better than people who have listened to some of the more um, hysterical or gloomy voices out there. Um, Do you give yourself pats on the back or do you just feel like, this is what I do. I try to understand. Well, you know, I've been doing research for 27 years. Right. And when I was a kidder, the director of research said, you know, never get too happy with yourself because right. you're only good as your last call. So okay. I think we're always paranoid looking over our shoulders. Right. Like what could go wrong? Yeah. Where am I wrong? I, yeah. hear that, I hear that consistently from people that, you know, are in a similar situation that you're in. Um, so I wanted to ask you about... We're going to get into your conclusions later, but I wanted to ask you about your process. Like, what what would you tell someone are the most important things to to look at to understand why the markets are doing what they're doing? At Fundstrat, we'd say that you know there's a couple cornerstones of, of our research process. Um, the first is you know we we do evidence based research, so we really don't want to say something unless history can show it or we can show some correlation or, or probabilities. Okay, so you look at historical returns. Yes. Okay. And that's largely driven by demographics. So believe it or not, population has explained almost every bull market cycle since 1900. So if you just took uh, births and broke it up into 20-year generations and then mapped when each of these 20-year generations peaked, the greatest generation peaked in 1974 the silent generation peaked in uh, 1930. The boomers peaked in 99. Gen X peaked in 2018. Okay. Every major market top has coincided with a generational peak. When you say peaked, you mean the number of births in that cohort turning a certain age? Yeah. So what happens is the, the cohort grows over time because there's immigration and births okay. and then deaths. So it's really the immigration that's a big swing factor as well as the births. So you could almost predict every major market top with a 40-year lead time okay. just by tracking births. So if you're looking at demography and population, how is it that you were able to draw the right conclusions from that, whereas one of the foremost authority, not I don't want you to criticize someone else's research, but let's take uh, Harry Dent Jr., who almost, looks almost exclusively at population from what I've read and has drawn the exact opposite conclusion you have and has not been correct. Yes. Um, so last week, just coincidence, I'm not name dropping, I was with Masaki Shirakawa, 30th okay. Bank of Japan governor, father of QE. And we were doing a panel together about population. And one of the takeaways he had was that, you know, in Japan, the reason you can't say QE failed and Japanification happened is because their workforce actually shrank. Okay. When you have a shrinking workforce, you can't really grow the economy. It's really this prime age workforce and really this 30 to 50 year old band, this 20 year band that drives the economy. So you have to track how that grows and shrinks over time. Okay, so the 30 to 50 year old is having children buying a home, um, earning 
toward their peak, if not at their peak, yep. and spending more than people in the other age That's groups. That's right. So uh, Chase credit card data from the Chase Institute, anyone can download, shows that that cohort is the only cohort driving credit card spending growth in any year. Okay. So boomers are actually, you know, older people are actually cutting down their spending. And then when you look at Urban Institute data, leverage per person rises from age 20 to 50. So that group is really driving the credit impulse and it's the GDP multiplier of the economy. Okay, so then from that, from that lens, how does the United States look um, it, in terms of like that cohort and where we are in that cycle? Um, so uh, we, we have many charts on this and it's about to blast off. It, this number, 20 to 50 year olds, actually went negative in 2005 because Gen X was a, a contracting generation. Smaller than the one before. Correct. Right. And it bottomed in 08. It stayed negative until 2016. Just turned positive because of millennials. The oldest millennial is 37. And it's about to go up and to the right, looking a lot like the early 70s. So it's actually very bullish. Okay. I love that frame with which to then ask you, okay, so you have that as like a baseline. Correct. That, okay, according to history, given the size of this cohort and where they are in their age, this is the right time. What else are you looking at? On top of that, we have a, a, a third sort of framework, which is that equities are the junior piece of the capital structure, which means that economics and credit lead what equities should do. So I, I think our favorite indicator there is really watching high yield because it is the market closest to the equity markets, and high okay. yield has always led equities at the turns. Okay, so high yield, junk bonds, basically they, it, they're bonds, but they have equity-like features in terms of their volatility. Um, and they're not quite as senior as yes. Uh, okay, like it's treasuries. A, it's almost a smarter market because the principal is not guaranteed. Default risk can rise, and you know when there is default, your recovery rate's low. So high yield bonds are very macroeconomic. So sensitive. when you look at high yield bonds, are you looking at the credit quality of the universe, or are you looking at spreads over what you can earn in, you know, a, a, an investment grade bond or both? Yeah, it, it's both. So. Um, it's a spread, so we want to watch spread because that's a measure of perceived risk, but we also want to watch relative value. So when high yield yield to worst, which you, if you invert it, you get PE, if that's yielding more than equities, then equities are cheap. Okay. So you want to buy you, know, you want to buy equities until they're actually a lot more expensive than high yield. So, but you do get false signals in the high yield market. 2015 and 16 was a pretty good example because of how much of the high yield market was made up by energy companies and oil falls from 80 to 20. Um, and as a result, you do get some spreads blowing out. But uh, I don't recall you looking at that signal and saying, here we go, downturn. Yeah, so what's interesting, uh, and you bring up a really good analog. So when high yield has a year like 2016 or 2015 where total return was negative, yeah, um, we that's massive signal to us. Uh, because one, it's really hard for high yield to have a negative total return year. It's only happened five times since 1984. Wow. And five of five times, stocks had a positive return the following year. Why does that happen? Um, well, it's a real shock to cause total return for high yield to be negative. And in, it happened in 2008. You're calendar year negative returns for total. So even if you got the divid, even if you got the interest payment, yeah, 7 you still lost whatever. money because the price of the bond fell. Yeah, so you, you broke par. Okay. It's really rare. In fact, in, oh, high yields never posted two negative years back to back. So when they have a total return negative, high yield has amazing following total return year. So 2018 high yield had a negative total return year. Okay. This year, 
it you know it's up double digits but to us that was why we started the year so bullish is because we knew high yield was telling us this would be a great equity year okay what else do you look at so uh positioning and risk reward are the other two so positioning now we look at prime brokerage data which not everybody uh, who who's watching this can access but i think the the simplest measure we like to use is the aaii sentiment survey i think it's really bulletproof and it's been around for more than 30 years this is for positioning for positioning, yes. Okay. And it's a contrarian signal. When the AAII bulls less bears is extreme negative, so minus 20 percentage points or worse, 100% of the time, it's a buy signal six months out. Okay, because the market tends to trade higher, and then the people that had gotten bearish end up chasing it up. Yeah, that's right, because when people are bearish, and so sentiment's really negative, they've likely sold. So that's the consensus view, and therefore good news can be good news. Okay, so how often do you get an extreme reading in something like the AAII poll? It's a two sigma, so meaning you'll get it every uh, 50 weeks or every 20 to 50 weeks. So yeah, and that's a free data source. They just publish it. Yeah, they I publish it I find that remarkable. Yeah. Um, Okay, and then what was the last one? Uh, risk reward, which probably the simplest way to measure that? it is, is is the VIX. Okay. So uh, the VIX, which everyone is very familiar with because they know when it's going up, there's a lot of fear. But it's really measuring the cost of term premium for an option. Uh, it's implied volatility. Okay. And so when it's rising, then you know there's a lot of fear because people are trying to buy protection. So for this audience, the VIX rising uh, signifies people who are essentially buying insurance against the stocks they own in their portfolio or against the overall market. Yeah. Okay. And there's a little twist to the VIX, which is uh, using the VIX futures, which anyone can still access, even through Yahoo. Uh, but you know, the VIX has contracts expiring one month all the way through 12 months forward. Okay. If you see the price of a one month contract above the four month, that means people are more fearful of things in the next month versus four months out. Okay. So it's an inverted curve. And that's got to be that's got to be very encouraging if you're looking for an opportunity to buy. Correct. It's only happened 7 times since 2009. I was going to say that sounds like it would be a really rare occurrence. Yeah, and we had one when this year. When does that happen like around elections or around things that seem like they might have a binary outcome? Correct. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so you could have it, it could happen around Brexit, it could happen around elections, it right. could happen around uh, trade tensions. It happened this year, and we use that as a signal to tell our clients that a tradable bottom was in. So are you quantifying these things on some sort of a numerical scale, or is it really more art than science, and you're just saying, I like what I'm seeing according to these four indicators, um, like, or, or is it a mixture of the two? Yeah, so uh, we we accumulate the data. So Josh, we, we, we provide our clients the probabilities. So when AI is minus 22, we show the three-month, six-month, nine-month, but the Six-month probability of a gain is 98%. Right. So it's almost as good as 100. And with the VIX, uh, now N equals only seven, but seven of seven times it was a tradable bottom. So I think the way we look at indicators is when there's extremes, so more than a two standard deviation reading, it's signal. So as a research person, you must, I, I, I assume most of the people that you cater to are asset managers, hedge fund managers. Do you find as a research person that a lot of what people want from you is confirmation bias, meaning they already have their own view, and what they want is the information from you that will back that up. And if that's the case, do you, do you fight back at all and say, I know you don't want to hear this, but? Or like, what, how do you see your role in that relationship? Yeah. Um, so in, in the research business, um, 
it's we're trying to do signal from noise because you can imagine all of our clients get a lot of information. So we're surrounded by noise. Everyone, yeah, everyone's right. Yeah, we're generating our own noise. Yes, right. Um, and uh, because we're independent research, we don't make money through anything else except advisory. Okay. So we always want to be their top three source. That's really what we're fighting for, and we have about 150 clients. Okay. Um, I would say half of them use us for a ballast. So at times of stress, we're helping them with stock lists and also trying to essentially prevent them from doing something catastrophic. Okay. Um, but in years where the markets like this, where consensus was quite negative, they've been happy to hear our variant view, even if they don't agree. This has been a challenging year because I think people kind of have been a little snarky because they're like, Tom, you're you're ignoring the fact that we're about to tip into recession. Or they're going to tell you, yeah, you're always bullish no matter what. Exactly. Right. Uh, but I think that fortunately, you know, it does look like the industrial cycle's bottoming, which was our view, and, and we're mid-cycle. And so I think people just appreciate that we're not trying to respond to the tape. We're trying to provide ballast to the tape. So speaking of sentiment extremes, um, the Barron's poll that everyone's talking about. The, so Barron's does this big money poll. They talk to actual professionals, um, portfolio managers, et cetera. And it was the lowest reading for bulls in something like twenty years. Are you serious? Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. So it was like the it was like a it was it was like a twenty seven percent bull reading or something, and it hadn't been under thirty in a certain amount. Whatever the number is, not important. Um, so I know that doesn't really enter into the data that you're using, but it coincides nicely it's, with it that. It speaks to everything. Yeah. So so my question is, speaking of noise, like. What if some of the stuff that you're looking at and that you have determined is historically important conflicts so widely with everything else? Like, do you ever have those kind of moments of truth where you'll say, I must be missing something? Yeah. Um, okay. So how do, you, how, do you de- how do you deal with that? Um, well, it's happened uh, several times this year. You know, one was uh, the yield curve inverted. And as you know, people... So that happened in the spring. It's Correct. It's kind of cleared itself up now a little bit. Yes. we're still close. Um, but it's the 10th, 10-year, 3-month. Yep. Now... It's considered a bulletproof signal. Um, and it would have been the death knell if indeed a recession followed. But what we highlight to our clients was, if you look at the nine times since 1950, of the first inversion of the 10-3, once an expansion starts, okay? Okay. <laughs> Eight of the nine times, it's because the Fed was raising Fed funds. So the three-month jumped above the 10-year. Ten, okay. So it was the central bank is engineering the inversion. Only in 1998 did the inversion happen because both rates were falling, but the 10-year fell faster. Right. That's what happened this year. So we were explaining to our clients that this is an anomalous inversion just like 98, and it was not an economic signal. Well, you eventually did get a recession subsequent to the signal in 1998, um, yeah. arguably caused by the blowing up of a stock market bubble. Yes. Um, so I'm not sure... I'm not sure if that if that enters into your thinking oh, about. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, it 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 does, Josh. But in '98, it was long-term capital that caused the risk off. And right. so what happened was, uh, if you bought on the date of that inversion, you were up 40 percent 18 months later. Oh yeah, '99 was one of the best years. Ever. Yes, I, so, I agree. Yeah. Um, okay, so when you are speaking with clients about what's happening right now, um, and and just like in general terms, because people will watch this video for years to come. Uh, a lot of what people are referencing is, as you mentioned, the, the recession probability seems to be going up. The Fed seems to be partially fueling that concern because they're essentially bowing to, um, I guess, market and non-market pressure yeah. in accommodating, yes. which is rare outside of, you know, outside of a potential recession. Like, how do you uh, help people make 
constructive investment decisions in an environment like this generally? And then what do you think people specifically have wrong about what's happening right now? So we, uh, we have this list called Granny Shots. Um, granny shots. Granny shots, and okay. it's a, it's a tribute to Rick Barry, okay. uh, who was a free thrower, but he threw underhanded, yep. an unconventional free thrower. But probability but, of success, good. yes, yeah. that's the mechanically physics best way to throw free throws. So we uh, we won thematic for portfolios, and we have a quant overlay, and so our granny shots are the stocks that appear in the most, and and so it's really low vol, high quality stocks. Okay, um, and that's what we want, really, like our parents to buy. Right. Um, but in terms of what you said, Leon, what, what people maybe have gotten wrong this year, and I'm not saying anyone's wrong because we, you know, the year's not over yet, but I think three things have happened. You know, one is I think that there is a, a oversensitivity to think the cycle's ending because of age. And because of how long markets seem to have been going up. Yes, because ten years of an expansion, longest in history, and almost everyone thinks we have to be late cycle as a consequence. Right. Which you could understand. Yes, it makes sense, but right. we have two fairly bulletproof measures of cycle, which is employed to population ratio and in private investment to GDP spend. And they're not saying that? They're mid-cycle, yeah. Okay, all right. Um, the second is I think people tend to think the center of gravity of growth in the world is China, which was true for the last 20 years. But our work is showing that it's actually gonna be the US the next 20. Wow. So we have a huge structural shift taking place. China might actually be Japan in the next 20 years. And and a lot of this is coming from demography, you're saying? Yeah, demography, and, and if you look at Wealth accumulation or value capture, the U.S. has captured $100 trillion of household wealth, which is one-third of global wealth, and, and they've actually widened their lead. In the next 20 years, I think U.S. might control over 50% of global wealth. Okay, so what you're saying is not to just take at face value these prognostications that we're entering into the Chinese decade or the Chinese century um, simply because of their size catching up to ours that there are more important considerations. Yeah, that's right. So China is going to be the second most important economy. But in the next 10 years, the U.S. is clearly the most important. There's the millennials inheriting $75 trillion of wealth. And building their own. Building their own. Right. They're about to hit their 30 to 50 range, which means they're going to be buying a lot of houses. No other country that's developed except for India is going to see this. So there's only two regions that are going to see this sort of hyper growth, U.S. and India. And the third is, I think there's a lot of people that want a recession because they either want to change the White House or their long bonds. And so we think there's recession mania. You know, people are carrying 2008 hammers looking for 2008 nails. Oh, so the last thing I would ask you to build on that point, though, isn't it possible that enough people expect a recession, you'll have one because they'll change their spending behavior? Or is that, is, I, I think Schiller would probably agree with what I just yes, said. Yes, yeah, that's you? the animal spirits. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's. And, right, Keynes would, would certainly agree with that. Yeah. You think that's overblown as a concern? I think that could be true at the CEO level. I think CEOs could get cautious. But I think that the average American uh, will measure this by his job and his stock portfolio. And by yeah. those two measures, his wages are increasing. His job security is rather high. Yeah. You look at that in the jolts, quit rates. Yeah. And of course, his 401k this year has had a, a terrific year. Yeah. In fact, you know, I, I would say retail has outperformed active managers this year because right. retail 60-40 is Double digits on both. And stop guessing. Yeah. Right. Well, Tom, thank you so much for coming to talk about this stuff. I'm going to post a link to uh, where people can read more of your stuff. Would you send them to fundstrat.com? Or fsinsight.com. So Fundstrat's more for our institutional. Okay. 
FSinsight.com is for RIAs and individuals. You got it. And you're on Twitter as at Funstrat. Yes. Everybody follow Tom Lee. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Tom's a, a great follow. If you're, uh, if you're on Twitter, make sure you, you go ahead and smash that follow button. Go ahead and subscribe to the channel if you haven't yet. And we'll talk to you soon.